you, you have all these different kind of layers of the story that are all connected via this, this web. And because of that, you know, I, that this is why I think when you understand all the layers of connectedness between these different systems, it's really hard to then go, oh, I found the cause. It's this one thing that I found on this lab test. And that's the cause. And so we're going to do this protocol to address this one thing. And that's it. It's like, no, if you found that one thing, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff that that's been uh, disrupted as well. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose, and with me today from San Diego is Ari Witten. Hi, Ari. Hey, Nathan. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for joining us. So, Ari, you're, uh, you, you really look at fatigue and specialize in helping people treat fatigue. So I want to do a deep dive into that today and look at what are some of the drivers behind fatigue and look at some of the science you've looked at. And if people don't know you, um, you've got a, a fantastic podcast where you get to the um, great opportunity to interview a lot of the, the key researchers and clinicians. So um, from your experience talking to these people and looking at literature for two decades it seems um we're gonna yeah pick your brains on fatigue so before we get into that perhaps if you can give us a little bit of background of how you got to this point in really specializing in fatigue yeah well i'll give you the the super summarized very very quick version so we can get into some of the science on this topic um i start i got into to studying health nutrition fitness uh, when I was about 13 or 14 years old and, and really more from a, a fitness angle, I had always been an athlete since the time I was a little kid. Um, my parents were health conscious growing up. So I had some knowledge of nutrition from the time I was, you know, a, a, a tiny kid. Um, and then, uh, when I was 13 or 14, my, my older brother was, became a personal trainer and got into bodybuilding. And of course, like, most kids with an older brother, you look up to the, to your older brother and want to be just like him. So that was my, my goal from the time I was 13 or 14. So I started studying nutrition and, and biomechanics and exercise physiology and, and, you know, kind of the science around weight training and how to change body composition, how to build muscle mass, how to lose fat. And that was my world for many years. I went on to a, a bachelor's degree in kinesiology. I was a, a personal trainer for many years um, and, and kind of a nutritionist and health coach. And then, um, in my mid twenties, I got hit with, um, Epstein-Barr virus with mononucleosis. And, um, following that for about a year, I was severely chronically fatigued and that, that really rocked my world. Um, coming from the background of being healthy, being an athlete, you know, being, uh, full of energy and, and, and just extremely healthy from the time I was a little kid, all of a sudden I didn't have this thing that I had taken for granted my whole life, which was energy. And, um, that shifted my thinking. It shifted my focus a lot to, you know, basically making me realize that when you don't have energy, you're pretty much everything in your life kind of goes down the crapper. You're, you're, ability to perform in school or in work, uh, your ability to have relationships with friends and family and, and girlfriends, um, everything suffers massively when you lose your energy. And uh, 
that kind of sent, that was the catalyst for sending me on this path of wanting to dig into the science of energy levels. And, um, you know, we, we, we can talk more about what that whole process entailed and why it eventually led me to developing the energy blueprint, but suffice it to say, I, uh, I didn't like what I found when I first started digging into what was out there already. And so I, I decided that I was going to dedicate my life to building out the science of our understanding of how to overcome fatigue and, and increase our energy levels. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. So I think with that background in science is really set, helps set a platform so you can look at this objectively, which can be often hard when you've got an illness and you're, you're desperate for answers. Mm -hmm. um, perhaps we might, um, unravel how you uh, discovered what was driving your fatigue as we go through some of these drivers perhaps so we can keep um, keep keep this nice and succinct as you said so well fast forward to today you've got a, a large focus on the mitochondria for good reason um, so I thought we'd start there because that uh, is the powerhouse of the cell but I want to also maybe challenge that notion often in functional medicine that the mitochondria is just seen as this sort of um, visually it's like a if you cut a baked bean in half it looks like a baked bean and all we think about is atp but i sense there's a lot more going on to the mitochondria um than just energy production and, and a lot of this could be implicated in fatigue so um perhaps yeah let's start with the mitochondria and, and your views on that yeah well so you know one of one of the the layers that led me to the mitochondria was i first started really with the whole adrenal fatigue thing um, I, I was very much a student of, of holistic health, of natural health, and um, my initial place that I went when I started getting interested in, in energy and fatigue specifically was, of course, to land on this topic of adrenal fatigue. A lot of you know the people that I looked up to and my mentors within holistic health were all talking about this idea of you know fatigue is the result of chronic stress sort of wearing out your adrenal glands, which produce this hormone called cortisol, which is this really important hormone when it comes to energy levels. And if chronic stress wears out your adrenals and then they can't produce enough cortisol, then, then, you know, you get chronically fatigued as a result of that. And that's adrenal fatigue. So I believed in that for many years and, um, assumed if there were dozens of books being written about it and, and thousands of articles online about it, that it all must be real and supported by lots of good evidence. And, um, it came as a shock to me once I really dug into this and I spent really about a good year digging into the science on this topic when I started to discover uh, that the science really didn't support it. Uh, I, I, I discovered basically that this whole theory was built on, uh, you know, it was a house of cards. It was built on really no good evidence at all to suggest that um, the adrenal glands were the key driver of fatigue. So that, that kind of, and, and, and I'm happy to, we could talk more about that in detail now, or we can come back to it later, whatever you want, um, as far as the details of, of what all that research says, but, uh, it was really that recognition that rocked my world and made me go, okay, well, if it's not adrenal fatigue, what the heck is it? Uh, what is actually causing fatigue? And, and that's what started this big search. I also looked at conventional medicine. And within conventional medicine, unfortunately, they have almost nothing to offer people who are dealing with chronic fatigue. I mean, they just um, 
for the most part, don't have any idea what to do with people with fatigue. So in the United States, there's a, a journal called the American Family Physician that published uh, a, a few years ago, published um, evidence-based guidelines for how physicians should treat their patients with chronic fatigue. And without getting into all the details of it, here's the, the quick summary of it. Basically, they, they say, you know, for the most part, the cause of fatigue, we don't really know what's causing it. Um, here are the four best treatments to give your patients with fatigue. You can give them uh, a recommendation to do 30 minutes of walking and stretching every day. You can give them uh, a recommendation for antidepressants, cognitive behavioral therapy, and stimulants as needed. They can take stimulant pills as needed. That's basically what conventional medicine has as of 2019, you know? So um, it, it's not exactly a revolutionary treatment and a revolutionary understanding of the causes of fatigue and the, and the best treatments for it. They also have in that same, uh, the, the same evidence-based guidelines, they talk about blood tests, lab testing for mm. people with fatigue. And they go over, you know, basically here's the, you know, the standard blood tests. And if, unless there's something indicated based on symptoms, uh, you just do the standard love test. So unless, for example, someone is indicating, you know, has symptoms that suggest maybe tuberculosis, maybe you do a tuberculosis test, for example, um, or rule out some other particular disease. Uh, but for the most part, these chronically fatigued people are getting a standard blood test and, in this, the evidence-based guidelines, it literally says 95% of the time, the standard blood tests will not show anything meaningful that changes their recommendations of those basic four things to do of, you know, walk and stretch for 30 minutes a day and, and do CBT and take antidepressants and take stimulant pills as needed. Um, so that's basically what conventional medicine has you know, the, the, the holistic natural medicine, holistic medicine and functional medicine to, to a large extent as well. They've been really focused on the whole adrenal fatigue paradigm, which is really not supported by the evidence. And it was really that recognition that neither, uh, from my mm. perspective, neither of those groups really know what they're doing when it comes to fatigue that made me want to, to build out the, what, what I consider to be the real science of fatigue. And, I eventually, after years of digging into the literature, really realized that the the story really centers around mitochondria. Wow! Yeah, that's a, <laughs> a long journey, and yeah, just to sort of, I suppose, recap. Yeah, so conventional medicine, um, unfortunately, doesn't provide many answers for most people, and uh, yeah, the the whole the typical narrative in functional medicine is around the adrenal fatigue, or historically, and that's probably somewhat been, um, I suppose debunked more recently so we've had to there's been plenty of gaps and it sounds like you're feeling those um mm -hmm. i did do a podcast with dr thomas williams a, a fair while ago so if listeners want to go back in the archives we we covered that and he's been a champion of trying to reframe adrenal fatigue for a, a long time so i think it's probably he shares very similar views to yourself so all right so maybe maybe <laughs> i will say that there are a lot of people out there that are kind of, they're kind of like halfway debunking adrenal fatigue. Yeah. They're, they'll, they'll say like, oh yeah, adrenal fatigue. I don't believe in that, but really it's HPA axis dysfunction. And I'll go a step further. I will also say that the, the research does not support the idea that even HPA axis mm. dysfunction is the, the primary driver of chronic fatigue. Yeah. Well, I think um, I have to cast my mind back, but my understanding is it's 
um, maybe an adaptation to the fatigue. It's a consequence of the fatigue rather than, um, you know, contributing to it. But yeah, maybe if you want to have a quick um, discussion on that. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I, I dug into this literature for about a year. Um, here's the quick summary of it. There's dozens of studies from researchers all over, all over the world from about 1995 through, through now, through 2019, where they've, most of these studies, basically they take a group of people with some kind of chronic fatigue condition. It might be chronic fatigue syndrome. It might be burnout syndrome. It might be stress-related exhaustion disorder. They, they go by a few different names in the, in the scientific literature and they compare cortisol levels or HPA axis function, uh, to normal, healthy people without fatigue that are, you know, a, a similar control group. So similar age, gender, et cetera. Um, and, and if the theory of adrenal fatigue or the idea that HPA axis dysfunction is the key driver of fatigue, uh, if that theory is true, these studies are perfectly designed to detect that and give you the answer. Um, and, and what you should find is basically that there's a very predictable trend where people with these fatigue conditions have significantly abnormal and lower, in particular, levels of cortisol. And abnormally low levels of cortisol would be extremely common in uh, these patients with fatigue. And when you dig into the literature, again, it's, a, it's about 60 studies that have been conducted over about 30 years. The literature just doesn't support that conclusion mm. at all. Um, there, there's almost no evidence at all to indicate any kind of real abnormality in cortisol, like the adrenals are incapable of producing enough cortisol. Um, basically the way the studies break down is of these, these 59 studies, um, 15 of them support slightly lower morning cortisol levels, but still normal 24 hour cortisol levels. So no actual inability to produce enough cortisol, slightly lower morning cortisol levels, often higher evening cortisol levels. There's another 11 that support the exact opposite finding higher morning cortisol levels in the people with fatigue compared to normal, healthy people. And then 33 of the 59 studies showed no discernible difference whatsoever. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and, and even where, a study did detect, for example, slightly lower, you know, on average morning cortisol levels in people with fatigue. Uh, it might still be the case within that group of, of, of fatigued people, two thirds of them or more had perfectly normal levels, but like one or two of the people in the group had very low cortisol and it skewed the, the number. Right. So, um, basically what I'm saying is if you give a hundred saliva tests, to someone who doesn't, who, who is skeptical of everything that I'm, I just said right now and says, no, I'm absolutely convinced adrenal fatigue is an absolutely real thing. And this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And I diagnose adrenal fatigue all the time. I see it all the time. I do cortisol tests. Well, what I'm saying is if, if I give you a, a stack of a hundred cortisol saliva tests to, to this person who is a hardcore proponent of adrenal fatigue and believer in it. Mm -hmm. And 50 of those are people with full-blown chronic fatigue and 50 of them are perfectly normal, healthy people. I would bet a large sum of money that that person 
would have no better chance of guessing who has chronic fatigue and who's normal and healthy than flipping a coin. Yeah. You know, that that's how much of a relationship there is between cortisol levels, a predictable relationship there is between cortisol levels and chronic fatigue. There is almost no relationship at all. Beautiful. Well, all right, so we can strike that off the list then. Um, now, so this sort of led you to the, the mitochondria-centric uh, approach of fatigue. So, uh, yeah, can you explain your views or yeah, where you're at now with um, fatigue and the mitochondria? Yeah, so I think the, you know, it, it, in a sense, to think of mitochondria as central to this story of, of energy levels is really just kind of a, a very straightforward and direct connection. Mitochondria are our cellular energy generators. They are the things in our, in our cells that are responsible for producing almost all of the energy that powers almost all of the, the trillions of cells in our body. So, you know, what could be more sort of direct and obvious uh, as far as exp an explanatory factor in why somebody has fatigue, low energy levels, then something's wrong with their energy generators, mm -hmm. right? It's, it's a very direct thing in, in contrast to, let's say the adrenal fatigue explanation, which is like, oh, you know, there's this stress response and the stress response involved, this involves this hormone involves the adrenals, which produce this hormone called cortisol and cortisol affects blood sugar and it affects, you know, has an impact on inflammation. And, you know, it's kind of involved in the way our body, you know, responds to stress. And, and, and so by affecting blood sugar, then it's going to affect your, your energy levels. It's, it's, it's a much more convoluted way of arriving at some kind of explanation for um, why somebody would be chronically fatigued. Um, so I, I think there's that intuitive level, again, just very direct and sort of obvious link, energy generators. Uh, but in addition to that, I started to encounter uh, the work of, of several people, like, for example, Dr. Sarah Myhill, who, um, mm. as luck would have it, I just interviewed her ah, again yes, yes. Time, uh, this morning. Um, but she really was, I think, one of the first people to start to focusing on mitochondria in the context of chronic fatigue syndrome. She also was um, instrumental in conducting some research with something called an ATP profile test, where they actually mm. identified measurable levels of mitochondrial dysfunction in the context of chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, so reading her book had a big impact on me and sort of got, got me in the direction of mitochondria uh, even more. And then... Um, I encountered Robert Navio's uh, cell danger response paper, which is an absolutely epic uh, <laughs> paper. I think one of the most important uh, pieces of uh, one of the most important research papers, like probably in the last 50 years, uh, as far as our paradigm and our understanding of not just fatigue, but uh, of health more broadly. And that went even a step further than almost everybody that was focused on the mitochondria at that time. And this, because almost everybody was still just kind of conceptualizing mitochondria as just these, you know, what we learned in high school and college biology classes, that uh, mitochondria are the, the powerhouse of the cell and kind of conceptualizing them as these mindless energy generators that just take in, you know, carbs and fats and, and pump out ATP, pump out cellular energy. And this Robert Navio's work in, uh, in the cell danger response turned that whole paradigm on its head or, or really not necessarily on its head, but 
added this massive other layer to the story of why mitochondria matter, which is mitochondria are not just mindless energy generators. They are, they are environmental sensors. And they're, in his words, they're the hub of the wheel of the metabolism. And um, they, they sense what's going on in the body. They sense what's going on in the environment. And then they determine, based on those signals that they're getting, whether they should operate in uh, peacetime metabolism, as Robert Navio calls it, uh, or energy mode where they're in, where they're pumping out lots of energy or whether they should shift more into the cell danger response, whether they should shift into wartime metabolism defense mode where they're directing, um, energy and resources towards defending the cell and defending the body against threats. And these are two sides of the same coin. So they're, they're, they're mutually exclusive. So the more that you are doing one, the less you're doing the other. So the more that the, those mitochondria are picking up on threats and danger signals in the environment, the more that they're going to turn off energy production. So the story of mitochondria isn't just this story of, you know, how do we give the mitochondria CoQ10 and, you know, cofactors for energy production. And that's all you need for mitochondrial health because they're just these mindless energy production, uh, energy, um, powerhouses that are, that, that are just, just pumping out energy and all they need is sort of the right nutrients and cofactors to do that. No, they don't actually the, the primary reason for low mitochondrial energy production might not at all be any kind of deficiency in nutrients or cofactors. It might be the presence of uh, some kind of threat, and that threat may be um, chronic inflammation from a poor diet. And we know that inflammatory cytokines directly interact with the mitochondria and, and decrease mitochondrial energy production. They, they act as kind of a danger signal to the mitochondria. It could be chronic immune activation from uh, from it's things in the diet that that uh, the body has become intolerant to. Um, it could be um, mycotoxins, or it could be an infection. I would say those are more exotic causes, um, but they, they do exist certainly. Um, or it could be disrupted circadian rhythm and sleep deprivation. It could be psychological stress. We know that there's a whole field, uh, of research called mitochondrial psychobiology now, where we know that there's a very direct interaction between, uh, what's going on in the mind, psychological and emotional stress directly impacting on mitochondrial function. Um, and, you know, it, it could be deficiencies in light exposure or toxicities in, in light exposure. It could be poor gut health. And we know that if you have, for example, gut permeability, um, you can have something called endotoxin or lipopolysaccharide leaking into your bloodstream chronically. And we know that's directly toxic to the mitochondria. That's going to act as another one of these signals that the mitochondria are going to, to, to shut down energy production in response to. Um, you can also have um, deficiencies in hormesis. This is a, another layer to the story, but and and probably deserves its own sort of section. But I'll just summarize it very quickly here as um, transient metabolic stressors that act as um, they they act as 
stimulators of mitochondrial strength. They, they keep your mitochondria big and strong and healthy. And when you don't have enough of these kind of lifestyle inputs, things like exercise is obviously one, but things like fasting, different kinds of phytonutrients, temperature stress, so cold stress, heat stress, like sauna, um, these things are extremely important to keep our mitochondria, to keep them, keep them exercised so that they stay big and strong and so they don't atrophy. Um, and the combination of a modern lifestyle that is deficient in those hormetic stressors that leads to shrinkage and atrophy and loss of our mitochondria combined with lots of other factors like the ones I just mentioned um, at the nutrition and lifestyle and environmental levels, those other factors are directly impacting on now what are what's a weakened you know state of of the body's mitochondrial health and acting to trigger them into defense mode and take them out of um, out of peacetime metabolism and energy production so the way i conceptualize fatigue now is hopefully everybody followed every everything i just said there but i, I think the big picture of how to conceptualize fatigue in a better way is not, you know, chronic stress has worn out our adrenal glands or our HPA axis such that, you know, it's disrupting cortisol and, and, and cortisol is controlling our energy levels, but the mitochondria are, as Dr. Navio calls them, the hub of the wheel of the metabolism. That is the most upstream thing that is regulating our energy levels. There's a difference between different factors that impact and influence our energy levels to some extent. And there's, there's so many things that do that. Cortisol is just one of dozens of things that do that. But if we're talking about things that not just have an impact on energy levels, but things that actually regulate energy levels, it's way smarter to focus on the mitochondria, in my opinion. And this paradigm is basically you are fatigued, your body's overall energy production and state of energetic abundance is in direct proportion to the degree that your mitochondria are sensing threats or danger signals in the environment or not sensing those danger signals. To the degree that they're sensing lots of danger signals, you, your body, your cells will shut down mitochondrial energy production more and more and more, and you'll feel more and more fatigued to the point where, you know, if you have really severe sources of danger signals in your environment, then you'll get a really severe shutdown of your mitochondria and you'll probably have chronic fatigue syndrome and be pretty debilitated and probably bedridden and not be able to move. And that's, that's what the most severe state of mitochondrial shutdown looks like. Um, but it can also exist as a much more mild form, mild form of just every day. I, you know, I can still function, but I'm, I'm lacking energy. You know, that, that's another form of mild mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial shutdown. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of my big picture way of conceptualizing this whole topic of the body's energy status. Beautiful. That's a, that's a great synthesis of a lot of work. Thank you. Um, mm. so I'll just, yeah, I want to dive into what are those danger signals in a, in a moment. Um, but before we do, I just want to look at testing or what sort of metrics or proxies can we get on the mitochondria and uh, actually is it really necessary if someone's fatigued we can maybe presume um they've got mitochondrial dysfunction i know sarah myhill 
Um, I'm familiar with that research. I think the more mitochondrial dysfunction correlated with greater fatigue um, symptoms, but she's also got a test available. I'm not sure if it's still available and accessible. Um, there's like urinary organic acid tests that some practitioners um, suggest can give us a, an insight into mitochondria. I think there's like the mito swab that can um, look at like, I think, respiratory chain levels. What are some of the tests out there? And uh, um, are there any ones that have clinical utility? I know if we compare that to Navio, they're, they're doing like really sort of advanced laboratory techniques on metabolomics. So yeah, that's probably out of our reach at the moment. So is there, right. is there anything available that, that offers clinical utility? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, it is a challenge, as you rightfully noted. So I think there's a few interesting tests. You, you mentioned the ones that are interesting, the ATP profile. There's some organic acid tests that can give you some insight uh, and the mito swab. Um, I personally don't really necessarily recommend any of them just because I, I, I actually think there's still... Um, a misconception around around mitochondria and their role, even even among the people who kind of are talking about mitochondria, I think there's still a whole lot of them that still conceptualize it as the the mindless energy generators and in need of you know these cofactors for energy production. So let's measure the cofactors and um, signs of mitochondrial dysfunction. I think it's it's quite possible that uh, you 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 won't necessarily even detect signs of mitochondrial dysfunction because there's a difference between mitochondrial dysfunction and mitochondrial shutdown. So a mitochondria may be perfectly healthy and capable of functioning at a high level, um, but it may be sensing signals from the environment that are causing it to temporarily shift into uh, a less energetic state. So let me give you an example. Um, if you catch a cold or a flu, what are what's one of the symptoms of that that pathogen, that infection? Well, fatigue. You're you're going to be fatigued. You're going to want to sleep more and rest more and not have as much energy. And that's that's a direct result of your mitochondria being shut down. Now, can you do a test for mitochondria in that state? And like a, a test for mitochondrial dysfunction, even like an ATP profile test like Sarah Myhill is doing, um, and, and pick up on measurable signs of those mitochondria being damaged or dysfunctional? Probably not, okay? But if you had a way of assessing mitochondrial shutdown, the actual, you know, whether those mitochondria, not, not whether they've been damaged and they're incapable of producing energy, but whether they are in this moment in the body deciding to, to shut down energy production, if you could measure that, that would probably give you some really interesting insight. But, and, and I would be willing to bet a lot of money that it would show you that the mitochondria are indeed being shut down. Um, but it's a challenge. So there's even some studies in, for example, chronic fatigue syndrome depending on how you measure it, you get very different results. So Sarah Myhill's with her ATP profile test has obviously shown there's some mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, uh, Dr. Navio's metabolomic studies have shown obviously huge signs of uh, a, the body being in sort of a hibernatory low energy state. But there's also these uh, some other studies where researchers have, have for example, taken some 
you know, leukocytes or red blood cells out of a person's body and put it in a Petri dish and then done tests to measure the mitochondria, well, not red blood cells, but more white blood cells, um, measure the, uh, the capacity of the mitochondria to produce energy. And um, in some of those studies, they show that the mitochondria are perfectly capable of producing enough energy. But I would argue that's not a very good way of testing it because you're completely removing the mitochondria from the environment, from those signals where it's going to be sensing and determining whether it should produce energy or not. You know, you're, you're putting it in an isolated uh, environment outside of the body and then measuring whether the mitochondria is damaged and dysfunctional or not. It may not be damaged or dysfunctional, but it may still be shutting down energy production. So, uh, you know, I think these are interesting layers to the story of why I don't, we unfortunately don't have really good tests right now for mitochondrial function. I was just, um, I was interviewing actually Dr. Dr. Um, Dr. Mercola the other day. Um, and he was really excited about these new tests that have come out where you can measure levels of deuterium in your body. Um, and de deuterium is a hydrogen isotope. Um, you know, it's, it's like, for example, if people have heard of heavy water, um, it's specific, you know, it's like the, the, the type of H2O but where certain numbers of that, that hydrogen have a neutron in the center of it, so it makes it a, a heavier molecule. And um, that is deuterium as opposed to sort of standard water. And that deuterium can eventually accumulate in your body and cause a significant amount of damage. There's some, some really interesting research around deuterium-depleted water in the context of treating cancer wow. and, and things like that. Um, but What's, what's an interesting layer to this story is that our mitochondria, when they're healthy, have the capacity to deplete deuterium in, inside of the cell. So um, basically the argument here is that if you, if you can measure the levels of deuterium in your body, in your body water, and the levels are higher that is indicative of poor mitochondrial function such that, you know, in, kind of suggesting that the mitochondria are, are not adequately depleting levels of deuterium at the cellular level. And so he was basically suggesting that he thinks that's probably the best test for mitochondrial health, much better than, you know, for example, all the ones that you mentioned. Um, so it's still kind of indirect, mm. right? It's still not necessarily, you know, we, we don't have a direct measurement of can we directly and objectively and accurately assess the degree to which the mitochondria are maybe still healthy, but turned into, you know, into defense mode have switched on the cell danger response. Um, so I think there's some tests, you know, to summarize all this, there's some tests that can give you some insight into your mitochondrial health. Um, Oh, actually, sorry, one more layer to the story here, which is going back to what I said about hormesis, the, the other layer to the story is it is possible to have your mitochondria shrink and to actually lose mitochondria. So to, to have much less, much fewer mitochondria in your cells. There's actually some research uh, that has shown between the ages of 40 to 70, people, most people lose about half of their mitochondrial capacity. And there's research 
suggesting that probably something similar occurs from the ages of 20 to 40. So from the ages of 20 to 70, most people are losing something like 75% of their mitochondrial capacity. Now, that those tests, they, they can actually measure how many mitochondria are inside of your cells and inside of your tissues. But, and this, this may be, this is, so this is another layer of the story, right? So those tests like organic acid tests or even the deuterium depletion tests or the ATP profile tests, they could tell you maybe indications of, you know, signs of whether the mitochondria might be dysfunctional. But they're not going to tell you either the extent to which the mitochondria are turned into defense mode mm -hmm. or the extent to which you've lost mitochondria and you have much fewer mitochondria in your cells than you should have. So that can only be tested with a biopsy. You got to stick a big, mm -hmm. thick needle into your muscle tissue, extract a chunk of tissue, and look at it under a microscope and count how many mitochondria are in those cells. So, um, you know, hopefully people can grasp here that this, unfortunately, I, I wish it were simpler, but there's a lot of layers of complexity here when it comes to testing mitochondria. Some of these tests can give some insight, but I'm not necessarily p convinced that any of them are, are the, the, the ultimate mitochondrial test. And to be honest, I'm really of the opinion that if you have the symptom of fatigue, you can be pretty much certain that if your mitochondria aren't necessarily damaged and dysfunctional, at the very least, they're switched into defense mode to a large degree. Yeah, great. And um, yeah, it's great that you've highlighted the, the limitations of those tests. I think that the, the number is really interesting and certainly are they in um, danger mode or is the alarm bells ringing in the mitochondria? So let's um, look at that then. Um, what is ringing the bells? Um, and this is a, yeah, you went through a long and exhaustive list previously one way we've framed it up is like and this might tie into martin picard's work about the allostatic load some of these are like regulatory i was just going to comment this is a fun interview to do because you're familiar with the so many layers of of the research that um uh, oh, thank you yeah you we have been looking at it yeah. for a while. Um, yeah, the regulatory network, so the you know the thyroid or the HPA, um, or even the microbiome, um, the brain, and that's another area of fatigue. Um, obviously, there's a lot of inflammation going on in the brain, and also the brain, the neurons contain the, probably the most abundant um, eight, uh, mitochondria per cell. But um, a lot of these are probably responding to the environment as well. Um, so there's again layers upon layers. How do you start sort of organizing and teasing out and screening for what is causing fatigue? And um, what are some of the more common ones before we get into, you mentioned like mycotoxins, they're probably more exotic, but they are interesting and popular at the moment, but we need to sort of, yeah, put it into context and a hierarchy. So yeah, how do you start organizing um, a workup or putting all the pieces together of this puzzle? Yeah. It's a, it's a really good question. I think there's a lot of layers to this, uh, to this answer. I, I was actually talking with uh, Sarah Myhill this morning, and one of the things I said in listening to her approach to dealing with fatigue is she's really emphasizing, in the same way that I do, the importance of the universal basics of nutrition and lifestyle. And so you, you get these pieces in place 
and they are pretty much one size fits all. Okay. Now somebody yeah. can, can tailor them to their unique needs or somebody may through experimentation, find this particular thing doesn't work for them, or this particular thing doesn't work with their unique schedule or, or whatever. However, I do think that within the functional medicine community, we've gone a little bit, um, overboard and become hyper-focused on all the layers of personalization and kind of everybody's individual uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we need to find out this particular person's unique genetic variations and, um, and, and, you know, analyze through a battery of lab tests, what, what are their unique causes? Well, uh, two things in, in response to that. One is, as we were just talking about with mitochondria, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can't even measure. So you you can't even measure the very thing that I think is the most central thing to the whole story of fatigue, which is mitochondrial health and the degree of mitochondrial shutdown. There isn't really a good test for that. Now, you also can't measure, measure lots of other really important things. Like there's no good test for, for example, your circadian rhythm. There's no good test to assess your sleep quality. There, I mean, other than like going to a sleep to, to do an actual yeah. uh, sleep study in a lab where you sleep overnight in the lab, um, which most people are not going to do there. There's no test for like to assess, to assess your degree of autophagy that's occurring in your cells or mitophagy. <laughs> there's no good test for um, your endocannabinoid system health. There's no good test for so many layers of really important aspects of our physiology that are likely playing very key roles in, in this story of fatigue. Um, there's even, you know, there are tests for many hormones, but many, there are lots of tests that are commonly used that aren't even necessarily that scientifically valid. Or, you know, I've seen many cases where, for example, if someone gets a saliva hormone test, a blood hormone test, and a urine hormone test, all at the same time, the the results of that they get back on those tests don't even match one another. They're hugely conflicting. Um, there's neurotransmitter tests, which are notoriously unreliable and, and not validated. There's food intolerance testing, which is notoriously unreliable and not scientifically validated. So my my point here is, there's lots of things we can't measure that are important. There's lots of things we are measuring that is likely just junk data. Um, and there's this excessive focus on these, um, this, these hyper, these individual variables that at the end of the day are probably only a small explanatory factor in why somebody has that condition. Now, they might be a big explanatory factor. Let's say somebody's variation of the COMT gene or MTHFR uh, genetic SNP. Um, but I would argue in the vast majority of cases, those things are only playing a very minor role and are probably only dysfunctional because the new, the basics of nutrition and lifestyle aren't in place. So, um, from my perspective, um, I think there needs to be a whole lot more focus on the universal basics. And then only once somebody is doing those things extremely well, then you go do some workups. You can do, you can experiment with some, some bowel tests, uh, some stool tests, um, other, you know, you could do gut permeability tests. You could, uh, potentially look at tests for looking at oxidative stress or, you know, standard blood tests to give signs of systemic inflammation. Um, 
you you know there, there's a, there's a few other tests that I think are, are worthwhile. I think you know hormone tests can be worthwhile, but I do think at the end of the day, like if the tests that you had available were capable of accurately measuring lots of other systems of the body, you'd probably find that those you'd probably find evidence of dysfunction in those systems too. Um, so I think we have to be careful. Uh, and let me clarify what I mean by that. So let's say someone has a test right now for, you know, uh, we can assess gut, you know, the gut microbiome and um, gut permeability, and we can assess, uh, you know, what's going on uh, as far as cortisol lab tests. We can assess what's going on as far as some, you know, some of the sex hormones, for example. Um, we can measure oxidative stress. We can measure a few other things. Um, if you were able to test for like directly test for neuroinflammation in the brain and directly test for, um, you know, for mitochondrial shutdown and for the degree of circadian rhythm disruption and, and for endocannabinoid system disruption, you'd, if you could test for those things, you'd probably identify dysfunction there too. So I think we have to be careful of confusing our limitations of testing for identifying the the true one cause of this person's condition. Do you, do you get what I mean by that, or should I clarify? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, um, recently, when I presented with um Dr. Andrew Heyman, he had this metaphor about the the spider's web. Like you'll you'll you know um pluck one string of it, and the whole web um, reverberates, and you can look at any one part and see it's exactly. all out of, out of sync. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's the cause. Exactly. Yes. That's a much more elegant way of explaining what I was trying to get at. <laughs> no, it's beautiful. Um, all right. So, yeah, I'm glad you touched upon these. And I actually yeah, agree with the um, interest in personalization, but um, we shouldn't, I think, discard the, the generic or the basics. Uh, so what are those? Let me, yeah. let me actually just mention like two more, two more quick things on this topic. Yeah, yeah. One is I was just watching a presentation uh, is actually by the Institute for Functional Medicine, directed at functional medicine doctors, um, like in the lecture room to functional medicine doctors. And one of the questions the presenter asked was, um, how many of you are getting your seven and a half hours of sleep every night? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 30% of people raise their hands. Okay. These, this is among health experts, among functional medicine doctors. 30% of people only 30% of people are doing one of the most basic fundamental things that everybody should be doing. Now, I would argue it makes no sense for people to be hyper-focused on someone's, you know, COMT gene variant and, you know, GSH gene variant and, and whatever other, you know, specific, ad very advanced functional medicine tests and organic acid tests when they're not doing very basic things. And so I think we're, we're putting the, the cart before the horse there to a large extent. And one more layer of evidence that I want to use to point in that direction is um, at the Cleveland Clinic's functional medicine program, they had such a demand for people wanting to come uh, see the functional medicine doctors there that they implemented uh, a sort of a pre-doctor's visit yeah. program. So for... Uh, for for 10 they put people through a 10 week 
program. That's it's a one size fits all program. It's basics of nutrition and lifestyle. It's nothing particularly advanced. It's just basics of nutrition, lifestyle, stress management, exercise, um, how to eat well, and and things like that. Within ten weeks, sixty six percent of those people who were <laughs> complaining of symptoms and wanted to go see a doctor no longer needed to see a doctor because they their symptoms were gone. So. Uh, and, and I would argue with a more sophisticated, you know, approach to nutrition and lifestyle, more advanced approach, probably the percentage would be something closer to 90%. So the, and then, you know, maybe there's 10%, maybe 15% of people left over who have really severe health problems. And the, the, the universal approaches of advanced nutrition and lifestyle strategies don't work to to fix all of their symptoms. I would still bet a large sum of money they'd make a huge improvement if not completely fixing it. But for those people, that's when you need to go do some detective work and figure out what what are the unique causes for this individual. Um, but you know, again, I think there's just way too many people uh, putting the cart before the horse here. Absolutely. Um, so just briefly. Probably obvious, but what are some of the the universal basics that you really stress in your program? Yeah, well, so one thing is is circadian rhythm. Circadian rhythm is this biological clock in our brain uh, that that in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of of the hypothalamus that uh, regulates our sleep and wake cycles, and it regulates so many different neurotransmitters and hormones, as well as aspects of our mitochondrial function that directly impact on uh, and our sleep quality, on our mood, on our brain performance, and our energy levels. And, um, and, and it's actually upstream of so many of the other abnormalities that someone might find on a lab test, like so let's say sex hormone abnormalities um, in testosterone or, or estrogen and things like that, or cortisol abnormalities, um, to go back to what we were talking about that. Uh, hugely impacted by your circadian rhythm and your sleep. And I would argue actually that probably more than 90% of people's cortisol abnormalities and HPA axis abnormalities are actually just circadian rhythm disruption. So I think circadian rhythm is is hugely important. I think it's the single most common cause uh, of fatigue for most people. Um, we can talk more in depth about that. We can talk more in depth about some of the mechanisms if you want, but I'll just, you know, quick overview. I think um, psychological stress, you know, can, can also be a huge factor. I think gut dysfunction, which to some extent ties, you know, everything, the, the spider web is really the best analogy because even I've only named three factors so far, but everything already intertwines. So for example, we know circadian rhythm and sleep directly impact on gut health. We know stress. Yeah directly impacts on gut health. We know gut health directly impacts on brain health, which, which, um, can impact what, you know, can impact your, your resilience level and your capacity to respond to stress and your mood and brain performance. Um, so even just mentioning those three nodes of the network, you're already starting to see this web form where things are connecting in a bi-directional way. Um, then you add in the mitochondrial piece and we know that stress and circadian rhythm and, gut health all directly impact on mitochondrial health, which I see as very much the kind of the hub of the web. Um, and then you add in, you know, the hormesis piece, you add in environmental toxicants, which are directly toxic to 
the mitochondria, which can also be directly toxic to the brain, which can also be directly toxic to the gut, um, which can also disturb sleep. Uh, the, the, you know, stress can also disturb sleep. Uh, then you add in the light exposure piece that we know that light can impact, uh, directly, of course, on mitochondria. It can impact on, of course, circadian rhythm. It can impact on gut health. Um, we know that, uh, these environmental toxicants can impact on gut health and mitochondrial health. We know that hormesis impacts on mitochondrial health, um, and brain health and inflammation levels. And, you know, so every, you, you have all these different kind of layers of the story that are all connected via this, this web. And because of that, you know, I, that this is why I think when you understand all the layers of connectedness between these different systems, it's really hard to then go, Oh, I found the cause. It's this one thing that I found on this lab test and that's the cause. And so we're going to do this protocol to address this one thing. And that's it. It's like, no, if you found that one thing, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff that that's been uh, disrupted as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we've covered off the the universal basics. I just want to touch upon now some more, I suppose, individual or specific therapies. Um, I'm curious on your views, like on this um, treating the mitochondria with with mitochondrial nutrients irrespective of the cause. Um, so Professor Garth Nicholson's published some research on this where mm-hmm. um, giving lipids and omega-3s and a few other um, constituents, irrespective if they've got Lyme or other fatigue, they do see large improvements. Not It's not curative, but um, significant improvements in fatigue scores. Is that something you um, endorse? Like, um, yeah, to supplying mitochondrial nutrients even though we've just discussed how the mitochondria goes through different modes and phases um is there benefit to supporting mitochondria nutritionally yeah i i definitely think so um and you know forgive me for we we could go into depth on on more you know specifics of some of those aspects of lifestyle strategy for for you know, hormesis or for circadian rhythm or, or some of those other factors I mentioned, um, as far as these specifics of universal basics, but within the nutrition category, I would consider Garth Nicholson's lipid replacement therapy as one of my universal basics of nutrition. Okay. Yep. So yeah, I do think, um, providing adequate mitochondrial support and nutrients is part of the universal basics. And, you know, it has to be part of the universal basics. Because as we said before, there isn't even a good test for mitochondrial dysfunction. So we don't have the test to be able to even personalize whether and and really say, hey, this is the person that needs lipid replacement therapy, or that's the person that needs it, but this person doesn't. We don't have accurate diagnostics to even make a claim like that. So in the absence of that, why not give something that only has the capacity to to give benefits and no capacity to harm? It's like, do we also have a test for, I don't know, exercise, like to know whether someone should exercise or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, clinically, we might be able to say, I mean, someone might have intuitions about, you know, oh, this person's so debilitated and bedridden, it's probably not a good idea for them to exercise in this moment, but there's no lab test that we can do to determine yeah. oh, this person would respond good to exercise right now. And this person wouldn't, um, there's no lab test to determine whether this person would respond to blocking blue light 
at night and whether it's a good idea for them or whether they shouldn't do that, right? There's, there's no lab tests for lots of things, lots of really important things. So, you know, I, I, I do think, you know, supporting mitochondria, putting in lots of good, um, nutritional supplements and foods that have known, uh, mitochondrial supportive and regenerative properties is a very good idea. Another example, in addition to the, the phospholipid formulas in lipid replacement therapy is something like astaxanthin. Um, astaxanthin is a really powerful protector of mitochondrial membranes. It's, it actually embeds itself in mitochondrial membranes. So should we be using, um, you know, things like krill oil or astaxanthin supplements or eating foods rich in astaxanthin? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think that's a personalizable thing. I think every, yeah. every, everybody should do it because the, the research indicates it's beneficial and we have no way of discerning who needs it and who doesn't. Um, so I think that's the case for a lot of things. And, um, <clears throat> you know, when you get in, there, there's some things where, you know, for example, you could measure levels of many B vitamins pretty accurately. Um, there's some other areas, you know, things where ca that can't be measured that easily or required specialized tests, for example, magnesium, uh, which is another common deficiency. Uh, you need to do intracellular tests to measure magnesium accurately. So you got to measure like intracellular <clears throat> magnesium levels inside of red blood cells. If you do that test, then you can maybe get an accurate assessment of whether a person is truly magnesium deficient. Um, but from my perspective, like probably is not going to hurt them to take a little bit of more Absolutely. magnesium in, in yeah. their diet, regardless of, you know, even if they aren't deficient, if let's say they're, they're already pretty close to sufficient take is taking a little extra magnesium in their diet going to harm them. I would bet almost certainly not. Now, certainly if you mega dose it, everything has the capacity to, to do some harm. But uh, yeah, I do think it's a, it's a good idea for pretty much everybody to be using lots of compounds that support mitochondrial health. And um, I've actually, I did a custom formulated supplement that I've been working on for about a year and a half now. It's called Energenesis. And um, I released it for the first time four months ago, maybe four or five months ago. And I actually sold out in 10 days and I've been wow. struggling to get <laughs> it back in stock. Um, but the feedback has been phenomenal. I mean, you wouldn't believe the amount of angry people I have at me right now that <laughs> that are are dying to to buy it again and are pissed off at me that they can't that I'm still sold out and I haven't got it back in stock. So uh, I think if that's any indication, yeah, I do think it's a really good idea to use yeah. um, mitochondrial supportive supplements. Okay. Two more questions. Uh, thanks for your time. Um, so the cell danger response with Navio, he feels that a lot of these chronic diseases, including chronic fatigue, is where the mitochondria are sort of stuck in a certain mode and it can't progress or these checkpoints. And he's done the, that pilot trial with um, Suriman, I believe, for mm -hmm. autism, which is a, the view is or the mechanism, proposed mechanism that helps um, unblock or progress through the next cycle. Fascinating data. I think he's about to do some research, a pilot trial yeah. on that that drug as well with chronic fatigue. I think, I think, it, I think it blocks purines it, it yeah. blocks paramagnetic signaling so Which it blocks, like, turns the, off the, the, the alarm yes yeah yeah but so sorry turning, go ahead yeah so it's turning off the alarm of the, the cell danger response um mm -hmm. i don't think there's anything yet in natural medicine but i don't know have you sort of thought about how this applies to natural medicine or how we can mimic this somehow yeah well so uh i'm in a kind of a unique position to answer this question because uh -huh. uh, 
uh, I've, uh, <clears throat> I've, I've actually met Dr. Navio and I spent some time in his lab. He happens to live in the same city That's as correct. I do. And I was, I was connected via a friend about a year and a half ago or something like that, or two years ago, maybe. And, uh, and I sat down in his lab with him for a few hours and he kind of gave me a personal teaching session. I got to ask him a bunch of questions. Um, so uh, I, I don't necessarily want to misrepresent his views here. Uh, and I, but, but so I'll, I, I hope that I'm doing justice to his views and, and that he wouldn't feel that I'm misrepresenting him in any way, but I'll tell you that, um, a couple things from a practical, practical perspective, when you're a researcher and you're trying to get funded to conduct research, uh, from what I understand from knowing him and somebody who helps him run the lab, um, they almost have to do drug-based trials. Okay. So in, in order to get funding, just on a practical level, like the, the, people, the, the people who would give money to invest in some research being conducted are not excited by the prospect of doing nutritional and lifestyle interventions. They're excited by the prospect of a drug cure. So I think on a practical level there, just to kind of prove the model and prove the theory, they're kind of forced into this drug research model. So that's one layer to the story. The other layer to the story is um, I talked with Dr. Navio about lifestyle and nutrition, and he is a huge believer in nutrition and lifestyle. And basically, I, I, I don't know if I'll remember the, the, the exact words he said to me, and I don't want to misquote him, but basically he said to me, like, yeah, nutrition and lifestyle is where it's at. That, that's, that's the real answer. And, um, you know, I'm sure there's more nuance to his views in the sense that maybe, you know, for some people, he thinks they're so severe that maybe they'll need some other, you know, very targeted interventions. But I can tell you, he is absolutely a huge believer in nutrition and lifestyle and does um, believe that that has the power to massively affect what's going on with the cell danger response and, and mitochondrial health and mitochondrial energy production. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Great. Um, final one. Um, just back to the hormesis, uh, I've been wondering about this for a while. Um, the use of antioxidant supplements, I think it's Risto, a German researcher, showed. Um, yeah, administ- Michael Risto. Yeah, Michael Risto uh, administering I think the high doses, but maybe a gram dose of vitamin C and about similar for vitamin E, completely blunted the, the benefits of an exercise program. Um mm-hmm. Practitioners are often prescribing, you know, highish doses of antioxidants. Do you have any caution there or, or a ceiling that you, you might be, you know, mindful of not to exceed? Yeah, great question. So um, I don't know if you've seen or read some of my stuff on this topic. Um, no. I have a whole big section of it in my program, in my Energy Blueprint program. I have a whole, you know, entire hour-long lecture on this topic. Um yeah, I, I, this is a big area of fascination for me. Uh, and I think there's still widespread misconceptions around antioxidants and their usefulness and their their effects in the human body. There, there's a lot of nuances to this answer. So I could we could spend an hour talking about this right now. But um, I'll try and quickly summarize some of the key points of my views. Um, first... The, the, the basic idea of antioxidants, the sort of general conception of antioxidants that most people have in the lay public, and I would say this is still common among 
um, health practitioners as well, is oxidants are bad, antioxidants mm. are good. There's still so many people in that kind of mode of thinking, and it's just wrong. We know it's wrong now. Um, so there's a variety of ways that this is wrong, but first of all, the cell has its own production of reactive oxygen species. And they, those reactive oxygen species serve important roles. They're not just bad things. They're not just free radicals that are there to, to be bad and, and are malicious and need to be neutralized by taking antioxidants. They're there to serve important beneficial roles. And uh, so that's one layer of the story is the cell actually maintains a proper redox balance of production of reactive oxygen species or free radicals and production of antioxidants. It maintains its own balance of those things at the proper level that the cell decides it wants to maintain those things at. Now, it is possible for various things in the environment and in the lifestyle and, and you know, various systems of the body to dysfunction in a way where that proper, the cells lose their ability to regulate that balance properly. However, if you understand that the cells are trying to regulate a homeostatic balance between oxidants and antioxidants, the goal shouldn't just be to exogenously supply lots of antioxidants. The goal should be how do we restore the cell's ability to properly regulate that balance as it sees fit. So as an analogy, uh, it would be like seeing somebody with low testosterone levels and then being like, well, you know, they've low testosterone's bad. We got to fix this problem. Let's just start injecting testosterone. Well, no, you probably want to first see if, you know, given that the, the body in, in men's case, uh, the, the, the testicles produce testosterone, you probably want to see if you can dig in and figure out the underlying root causes of why the body is not producing enough testosterone and address those rather than just start injecting testosterone, right? So the same is true with cellular redox balance. Um, you don't necessarily want to just add tons of antioxidants to the system because the cell will that will also disturb the cell's ability to regulate the proper balance of oxidants and antioxidants. So in response to that, it might, for example, ramp up its supply of oxidants even further. Um, and actually, I just saw a study two days ago that suggested exactly that. I'm happy to to find it and share it with you if you're you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, but it it basically said antioxidant supplementation paradoxically caused an increase in oxidative stress. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing it could do is decrease its own endogenous uh, internal production of antioxidants, which is also not a good thing. Mm -hmm. um, but so, so that's kind of one layer to the story to, that's important to understand is that you know, reactive oxygen species are not just bad guys that we should neutralize. We have to help the cell regulate proper balance of those things. And the way to do that is not just to pump tons of antioxidants into the system. So that's one, one layer. If somebody is, you, you measure them and you determine that they're deficient in those things, th those are important nutrients and it is good to be sufficient in them but it's not necessarily good to just keep pumping lots of them in. And the more you pump in, the more healthy you get. Um, and in fact, the research does not bear that out at all. So there's lots of long-term trials where they've looked at antioxidant supplementation, vitamin A, C, E, um, in the context of all kinds of diseases, various kinds of cancers, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, 
And it was obviously originally hypothesized that those antioxidants would play a very beneficial role in those diseases. And in fact, almost all of those studies have shown no decreased rates of any of those diseases. Uh, and there's even some studies where they've shown increased rates of some cancers, for example, like prostate cancer and, and things like that. Um, but the actual evidence is, is really pretty pathetic. Um, and I say this as somebody who's strongly, a strong advocate of natural health and a strong advocate of supplements, but antioxidants in particular, these vitamin antioxidant supplements really do not have good evidence to support their ability to prevent disease and reliably make people healthier. Um, and there's, like I said, there's even some evidence to suggest some harm in some cases. Um, the, the other layer to the story that's worth mentioning is if reactive oxygen species of free radicals were just bad and, you know, bad guys that needed to be neutralized, there would be no way to explain the fact that hormetic stressors, so for example, exercise, sauna exposure, things like that, um, which produce lots of free radicals, there would be no way to explain why these things that produce huge spikes of free radicals actually cause health benefits, right? So why do you know, if, if oxidants are bad, why is it that doing things which cause a huge spike of oxidants turn into really beneficial things, like pretty much the most powerful medicines on the, on the mm -hmm. planet? That, that shouldn't be the case if the old model of the free radical theory of aging is, is, was accurate. And the reason why is, again, because we have this internal um, system that regulates redox balance and regulates internal supply of antioxidants. And what these uh, external hormetic stressors that spike reactive oxygen species actually do is they stimulate that internal antioxidant defense system to grow bigger and stronger. So it increases the internal supply of antioxidants and the capacity, the reserve capacity of that system to deal with free radicals and ultimately to neutralize any toxic insults that it that it might encounter from a broad range of other stressors, not just the one type of hormetic stress that that you encountered. So you, you're creating cellular, you're creating resilience at the cellular level to a huge range of of many different types of stressors. Um, so those are those are some of the more important layers to understand. Uh, the one other layer that's I almost hesitate to open this one up because it's very detailed, but um, Another misconception here is that people often refer to lots of different kinds of phytonutrients uh, and polyphenols and various kinds of phytochemicals as quote unquote antioxidants. And the research does not support the idea that these, uh, almost, uh, this is a general statement, but the research pretty much categorically does not support the idea that those phytochemicals are acting as antioxidants in our system. In most cases, they're actually acting as pro-oxidants that again, like the hormetic stressors, they act as transient pro-oxidants that stimulate our internal antioxidant defense system to grow stronger. So um, they, they act in, in other words, they act in a totally different mechanism than the true antioxidants, things like vitamin A, C, and E. Um, so, you know, hopefully people can, can understand kind of the layers of nuance here, but 
I'm not opposed to eating a diet that is sufficient in things like vitamin A, C, and E. I think that's a very smart idea. But as you pointed out, the research specifically in the context of antioxidant supplementations, uh, supplementation around exercise, around hormetic stress more broadly, probably as it's tested further, but specifically what we, we have research on exercise right now, that research shows that antioxidant supplementation around exercise actually neutralizes the benefits that you get from exercise. So to, to state this another way, um, it used to be thought, you know, kind of, kind of going back to what I was saying a second ago about exercise, how it increases free radicals, it used to be thought for a long time by, by many health experts and scientists that, oh, exercise is good. We know it's good for us, but the big problem with exercise is that it creates this really nasty burst of free radicals. So what if we could take antioxidants around, uh, around exercise and then we get all the benefits of exercise, but we neutralize those nasty free radicals. And so it was recommended for many mm -hmm. years to actually take the antioxidants before and after exercise for that reason. But as it turns out, the benefits of exercise are largely dependent on the fact that it spikes free radicals. We need that spike of free radicals to actually get the benefits of exercise. So when you take antioxidants around, around the exercise, you neutralize and the oxidants and you neutralize a lot of the benefits of exercise itself. So if you do take um, antioxidants at all in your diet, and I personally don't, I, I only consume foods rich in those things. For example, I consume, you know, egg yolks and um, lots of vegetables with, with beta carotene and, um, uh, and, and, um, and certainly you know, various kinds of berries and powders and fruits with lots of vitamin C and things like that. But if you consume supplements that are rich in those kind of vitamin antioxidants, the best way to deal with that is to make sure that you do it at least three or four hours away from exercise, three or four hours before and three or four hours after exercise. Beautiful. And uh, thank you. I wasn't expecting all that, uh, but it's something I've been meaning to discuss with somebody for an extremely long period of time. And I'm glad you've um, yeah, covered that in such great detail. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll wrap it up with, you've been yeah more than generous with your time. I know it's getting late where you are and you've got family. So um, yeah, just before we yeah finish up, perhaps just um, yeah, tell us about some of your research uh, resources, the, the podcast and your program. Yeah. So uh, my, my website is called theenergyblueprint.com. And uh, if people want to go there, I have a, a free masterclass, free Double Your Energy Masterclass that takes people through uh, a whole bunch of practical strategies. It's a 10-day it's a course over the, you know, over the span of four videos. It takes people through a whole bunch of practical strategies to, uh, to start fixing their circadian rhythm and optimizing their mitochondrial health and start dramatically improving their energy levels uh, within the span of a few days. So people can, people can go to the energy blueprint.com and get access to that for free. Perfect. And in the, in the podcast as well, the energy blueprint, uh, blueprint podcast. Yeah. Yep. I have, uh, you know, my website also has tons of, of articles on it for free. Um, tons of podcasts. I think I'm on maybe 175 podcasts at something like that with lots of almost every conceivable topic related to, to energy levels and overcoming fatigue. 
so yeah, highly, highly recommend checking out the podcast as well. Tons of free resources. Fantastic. All right. It's been a pleasure today. It's, um, I, I love how you've jumped into the complexity and nothing's ever as black and white and dispelled um, a few myths along the way. Um, but yeah, I can really sense that passion you have for educating people on energy and how to improve it. So thank you for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. Thank you, Nathan. I, I appreciate it. This was a fun podcast uh, because, like I said, you you had so much knowledge of so many of these different topics. So we got to to delve into a lot of higher level details rather than just covering the basics. Thank you. Um, I'd like to catch up with you again. Maybe we didn't even get to cover off all your interest in light, but that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yes, most definitely. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast. Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.